Have you heard of the six know-it-alls? It's a group of experts in the quilting world who started Zooming to stay connected, and they soon felt their great conversations deserved a wider audience. It's difficult to introduce six guests with such incredible depth of knowledge and history in the quilting industry, so I decided to do something fun and search for the first thing that came up for each of them on Google. There's no way it will possibly do them justice to give a quick sentence about each person, but we'll get to know them a little bit better as we go. So here we go. Hello and welcome to the Quilter on Fire podcast, where we explore the stories of quilt teachers, speakers, artists, and everyday creative people just like you to share their tips, adventures, and day-to-day life that will bring you more joy and less overwhelm in the quilting studio. I'm your host, Brandy Maslowski, also known as the Quilter on Fire, and I can't wait to share with you this week's episode. The six know-it-alls are a group of independent scholars, lecturers, writers, and curators combined to bring a wealth of information to the table. They meet up and post lectures on conversations from everything from quilting to stitches to history and more. Let's get started with Julie. Julie Silber is a world-renowned quilt expert who is a dealer of antique and vintage quilts. Barbara Brackman is a quilt historian and author most well known for the Encyclopedia of Peace Patterns, and she's an inductee in the Quilters Hall of Fame. Mary Kay Waldvogel is known for the relentless manner in which she pursues missing information concerning a quilt or quilt maker, and she's also a 2009 inductee into the Quilters Hall of Fame. Debbie Cooney is a quilt historian who researches and collects applique quilts and has particular expertise on Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Maryland. Alden O'Brien is a historian and curator of clothing, fashion, and textiles with hands-on knowledge of objects and their interpretation. Lynn Bassett is an award-winning independent scholar specializing in New England's historic costume and textiles. I am here on Zoom in the presence of the six know-it-alls. This is a new experience for me, interviewing so many people at once. But ladies, thank you so much for pulling yourselves together to be here today. I really appreciate your time. Now, we're going to get into the story about your group and its humorous name and why you do a monthly event. But first, I want to chat with each of you one by one, all with the same question. I always love to get to know a little bit about you to begin the show. So where are you in the world? And give us a glimpse into your role or place in the world of quilts. So we'll go ahead first, alphabetical by name. Alden, let's start with you. Well, I grew up in Chicago and I've lived in New England and New York, but I've been in Washington, D.C., right here in the city for the last 30 or 35 years. And my role is more as a historian. I'm curator of costume and textiles at the DAR Museum and here in Washington, D.C., which a lot of people haven't heard of, but it's great. And we have a great quilt collection. And my, my interest was initially in historic fashion and clothing and sort of how it relates to social history, women's roles and things like that. But in about 2003, I took over the quilt collection as well. And, you know, it's just an adjacent field. I already know about the history of printed cottons and the history of textiles and the history of decorative arts. And 
So I found that although I had a lot of specifics to learn about quilt patterns and quilt trends and regional differences and so on, much of which I am indebted to my colleagues, especially Debbie and the other know-it-alls and other colleagues who I've learned a lot from, I found that it was, you know, very easy, a very easy transition and sort of add-on adjacent to costume history. And Lynn and I, both as fashion historians, end up saying, oh, well, this print looks a lot like what we see in dresses or whatever, of this or that period. So we, we bring that side to the conversation. Yeah, I can't wait to see how you each individually bring something to the table and how that works. So Barbara, let's go to you next. Where are you from? And how did you, how do you see yourself in the world of quilting? I'm from New York City, but I have moved around quite a bit. And I sort of wound up in Kansas City going to college. And now I live about 30 miles outside of Kansas City in Lawrence, Kansas. My background is in in special education, psychology, and language, which has very little to do with this. But quilting has been my hobby, making quilts and then sorting through them. I guess I had these unruly children in my classes. (laughs) And at night, I could sort those patterns into nine patches, four patches, and they would stay where they belong. So I have a reputation as a person who who, uh, likes to sort things out. And every pattern now has a number. Thank heavens for me. (laughs) You know, I'm I'm an amateur historian. And and if I have any history background, it's as an art historian. And so, which is a little bit different than the the science of, you know, real history, as they like to compare them. So my background is, is a lot in visuals, too. Well, and I'm sure you're being very humble there, but let's move on to Debbie and let's talk to you about your role in the world of quilting and where are you from? I am a transplanted New Englander. I live just outside Washington, D.C., where in the good weather, there are marvelous outdoor auctions and antique markets. So in my day job, I was an editor, especially of very dense documents. So pushing paper was my day labor. And on weekends, I would go to these outdoor markets and started collecting photographs, my first collecting interest. But then, especially around here, I noticed wonderful quilts all over the fields. In Pennsylvania, they were very bright and colorful and heavily patterned. Maryland has very well-made and beautifully balanced quilts. Often the early ones are chintz. And Northern Virginia, where I can reach, has similar to Maryland quilts, except that they very often have very folky designs on them, I've found. After the afternoon and and weekend job basically became my full-time passion. I'm retired now, so quilt history has become the the thing I do day in and day out. And joining this group has been wonderful because we just share so much that you couldn't find out otherwise. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear how your sense of your place has led you to become a quilt lover and historian. Okay. So let's move over to Julie. Where are you from and what's your role in the quilting world? Well, I've uh, been in California since 1966 a transplant from Michigan. And I came here to follow two college friends who graduated a year ahead of me. And those two became my mentors in a way because each of them had a quilt. And when I was growing up in an urban area with European grandparents, there were no quilts in my life. I might've seen them on TV, but they meant very little to me. Yet my parents are art collectors and I was pretty familiar with the visual arts. 
But when I got to California and stayed with my two friends getting settled, each of them had a quilt, one from her grandmother that had an enormous emotional value to her. And the other, Pat Ferrero, who was a painter, had found in a thrift store in 1966, quilts weren't on walls. She found a beautiful Victorian barn raising log cabin and put it on her wall. And these two experiences led me to respond to quilts in a way that I hadn't to any of the other visual arts. I always liked the visual arts, but something was happening outside of my eyes and in my gut. And I've spent the last what is it, 55 years or whatever it is, trying to understand and coming to understand more about what that visceral reaction was and why quilts are so important in the lives of women uh, and the people who live with those women in quilts. I am a dealer. I'm the only one of us who buys and sells antique quilts. And I'm not just interested, obviously, in the buying and selling. I wanted to know what these things were. I wanted to know where they came from. I wanted to know what they represented to the people who made them and lived with them. And I got very lucky and got involved in the American Quilt Study Group very early on. Each one of us is a member there and have been for a long time. And it's a place where crazy people like us (laughs) who are obsessed with quilts and women's history come together and share. And I don't know exactly how to describe my place in the quilt world. I've been around a long time. I think most people know me as a dealer, but I have also written books and worked on films. I curate exhibits and so on. And I have a very large library of quilt photographs, which I like to share in various ways. Oh, that's great. Well, I love how you just pulled, you were just drawn into the world and you never looked back. So Mary Kay, where are you from and where do you see your role in the quilting world? I was raised in St. Louis, in a suburb of St. Louis. Went to college in a little school in Illinois and uh, graduate school at Michigan. I was a linguistics and uh, French major. And I ended up in Chicago teaching English as a second language. And it was there when I had my first small apartment and I was looking for something for the wall in my apartment. Quilts had never, I don't think the word patchwork had ever crossed my lips before about 1974. And I one day went looking for something and I saw this quilt. It spoke to me. I got hooked like Julie did, went into the store, bought it, didn't ask where it was from or anything about. I loved it. I came home, I put it on the wall. It was a piece of women's history, I felt, that I was bringing into my space and I really loved it. And then I began wondering about, you know, who made these? How do you date them? I met a man who was also interested in antiques and he ended up taking a job in in Tennessee, in Knoxville. I followed him and I met Bets Ramsey when I was here um, from Chattanooga. She was, she liked quilts like I liked, the kind of funky ones that we didn't know the names of the patterns. I met Barbara Brackman and in Chattanooga at one of Bets Ramsey's seminars. We joined AQSG. Bets encouraged me to write for it. I've written about five papers for AQSG. Mainly, well, it's, it's a range. I, I really like all quilts, but I think I'm known in the quilt world for 1930s quilts and pattern history. And yeah, that relentless searching for 
primary sources, and I've been involved in the Alliance for American Quilts, AQSG, my local guild, and I really enjoy this group because I too am retired and I want to make sure that these kinds of stories get handed down and that I'm still you know, involved in this kind of sharing of ideas. That's why we're looking forward to being with you too, because we hope you, you're going to reach an audience that we haven't reached yet. And because we do have a really fascinating story, lots of content to share. Yeah. Yeah. I just love how you've all come together. So now we're going to move on into sort of an open conversation. Any of you can talk at any time, but first who wants to talk a little bit about Lynn? Cause she's not here. Does anybody want to sort of give a little bio about her, where she's from? Well, I met her through AQSG. She was the editor of the Uncoverings Journal. And I was just, I didn't really know her background. She edited one of my papers and she's a very determined editor. She had a wide background in quilt history. I was very impressed. I think maybe Alden is the closest to her. Well, I've known Lynn for about 30 years as a fellow curator. She used to be at Old Story Bridge Village in Massachusetts, which has a wonderful costume and textile collection. She is from Montana and came east to go to Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts. And she's been based in Massachusetts all this time. And she now is an independent scholar and curator, and she does collection assessments and many independent guest curator exhibits at places like the Wadsworth Athenaeum and Connecticut Historical Society. And she was the editor of the Massachusetts Quilt Documentation Project book, Our Commonwealth Massachusetts Quilts. And she's not available for this recording, which you will hear after her current, uh, her exhibit opens, but there's an exhibit um, at the Florence Griswold Museum in New London, in, in the New London County, Connecticut area on New London County embroidered textiles and quilts. So that is a terrific exhibit. And she's, as we record, she is installing that. Oh, cool. Okay, so let's dive a little bit into the story behind the six know-it-alls. So how do you all know each other? Like, how did you get formed? Is this, who wants to start with this? American Quilt Study Group. Mm -hmm. Ah, American Quilt Study Group. So you're all a part of it, and then you just really got to know each other? There's an annual seminar at which we all gather. It's in different places of the country every year. And there are also now, especially with Zoom, there are events during the year online. So we gather one way or another fairly frequently. Oh, that's great. And we had a lot in common, you know, and we used to go have a cocktail after a meeting (laughs) and we did other things. And so when the terrible crisis here, the, the COVID crisis began, I was pretty bored and I was trying to learn how to Zoom. I figured that's the future. So I said, well, let's meet every other Monday night and have a little glass of wine and talk about whatever. And pretty soon we were meeting every week and we were showing each other quilts and we were just cracking each other up. (laughs) I thought we were so amusing. We should go public. So we have a friend, Tara Miller, who's a technical person and she's our producer. And thank goodness for Tara. So we, and we just get together three or four Mondays a month. And then one Monday we pontificate and we are know-it-all. That's great. Let's give a little more of a shout out to Tara. So what role does she play? Well, she understands the platform. 
she throws out terms like Vimeo. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, and she she's our producer essentially. Uh-huh. And she also edits us. She's our editor, and heaven knows we need one. On her own, Tara is a, a budding quilt scholar herself and has a website called quiltdistrict.com and oh. has wonderful things there. She's a teacher and lecturer and she contributes technically to what we do, but she knows what we're talking about and contributes off screen to the knowledge as well. Yes. Okay. So we know that you do a show together. It's a talk and you have it available to the public. So what's it called and how often do you do it? Well, it's called the six know-it-alls and we do it the second Wednesday of every month. And, and we tape it about 10 days earlier. So that gives it, Tara some time to edit it and get it up there, but that's it. And we, well, let me just add that it premieres on the second Wednesday of every month. And then after a couple of days after the premiere, it's then available with forever access. So you can see it when it opens or anybody who wants to see it can see it thereafter forever. And we've been charging about $12 a session. Mostly that pays for our platforms. Okay, $12. Okay, that's good. So it's video, not just audio then? Yeah. Okay. It's visual. And there are five to six presentations each time. It lasts about an hour and a half. And it's, I think, really rich in detail. And I can't imagine if I were a viewer to get it all at one time. But the premiere is exciting because it is the premiere. It's the first time people get to see it and they can respond immediately on Facebook or even right there while it's going on. And it doesn't go up to Vimeo for two more days. And, but then yes, it's available lifetime if you've paid for the ticket price. Yeah. The, The format is through Eventbrite. And if you join our group on Facebook, we have six know it alls and we have six know it alls show us your quilts. Okay. where you can show a picture of your quilt and we all kind of weigh in on it or whatever in the same conversational uh, style as our conversations. But the format of the presentations is it's a Zoom and four or five of us at a time and each t- almost every time now we have guest know-it-alls. So it's a kind of a changing cast of characters to keep it even more interesting. But each of us will do a brief presentation on a quilt or a quilt topic and either say, well, now here, there's a little bit of a mystery to this, or this used to be a mystery, but we've just recently solved it, or I don't know what to think about this. What do you all think? Or here's a topic that's kind of interesting that you might not have thought about recently, and there's some recent uh, discussion or, or scholarship on it. And then, so for about seven or eight minutes, each of us presents a PowerPoint with the the quilt or quilts we're discussing and a little bit of context. And then for the last seven or eight minutes, all of us pile in and discuss it and ask more questions or say, you know, here's what occurs to me, or here's what I think the answer might be, or, you know, that really looks like it could date to this period instead of that period, or here's something else I know or read or suppose or guess. And so we're bringing all of our different areas of interest and expertise to weigh in on whatever the question or topic is. So that's why we thought it was a little bit of an interesting different format that people might like, because it really is a conversation among us to pile in and say what we think and ponder it all a little bit and and address some of these questions. So it's a little different from just 
a single lecture with this conversation or, or questions. Afterwards. You know, it occurs to me that people who don't know who we are and have never seen our presentations have heard our credentials. And it might be a little bit intimidating to hear how accomplished some of us are, especially the scholarly ones, of which I am not one. But I just want to make it clear that while it's kind of a deep dive into the topics that we choose, it's very accessible to anybody who's interested in quilts. History sometimes has, it seems like a dirty word. Some people don't like the sound of history because of their experience in high school or whatever. But I just want to emphasize that it's accessible to people who are interested at all in old quilts for inspiration or enriching their own experience as a quilt maker or quilt history. Yeah, I want to actually make a comment on that because, you know, before this year, I had actually never in my 30 years as a quilter really dove into the history of quilting. And I recently went to the MFA to see that show, the Fabric of a Nation show. And I thought it would be over my head or a little too deep for me, or I wouldn't understand everything. And when I went there and saw the quilts and read the write-ups and spoke to the curator and had the tour, I was blown away. Going to an MFA show, you're seeing a quilt that has just two years of research just by one intern on that one quilt, right? And it's just, I was fascinated by the entire thing. So I really encourage anyone who's listening right now to go and check out the six know-it-alls because there's so many wonderful topics and you have so many wonderful guests too. I saw one where you had Alex Anderson and it was absolutely delightful. So let's talk a little bit about some of the topics. So what were some of the very first topics you covered? Who wants to tackle that one? I think we started with pick your own topic. I think occasionally we, mostly we pick a theme, but I think in the beginning, we each just picked a quilt that fascinated us or had us curious about something and brought it to the table. And so they weren't related, except that they interested each one of us. We have had some themes and somebody might want to talk about that. Well, I remember the very first one, because this was pretty typical that I think I did It's a quilt that hangs on the wall in a middle bedroom. I've looked at it for 30 years and it's hexagons. It looked, and it has these tiny steel beads in it and steel beads holding it together. And so because Lynn and Alden might have something to say about why steel beads, it was, and they did. And it was just a plain, I mean, it's a beautiful quilt, but it's kind of rough, but I was looking for quilts that would stump the others. That's Mm -hmm. what I was doing in the beginning. And quilts that had a little bit of mystery. And we have moved on to topics. We've talked about temperance. We've talked about civil war. We've talked about quilt myth. Oh, that that was was a good good one. one. Quilt myths. We'll probably do that again. Improvisational quilts. Oh, improv quilts. Okay. Yes. Early use of sewing machines. And, you know, I started out because I had these costume experts. I I volunteer at the Spencer Museum at the university. We have some spectacular quilts. So I tried to mostly entertain them with these like dress picture quilts from England from 1802. And they knew exactly. I mean, they can look at the dress and tell me how old it was. Yeah. It's pretty fascinating. And what were you going to say, Alden? Oh, I was just remembering another category of the early use of sewing machine 
in quilts and improvisational quilts are not always African-American. And we've talked about abolition quilts. We've talked about <clears throat> lots of different individual quilts. And, you know, Lynn and I really love the early stuff. So we often have the 18th and early 19th century things. And Mary Kay often comes in with the 20th century and everybody else might be anywhere in between. So we usually have at least 150 year old spread in, in our topics in any given month. Okay, and I'd love to go through each of you and ask, what's a topic you still personally want to cover in the future? Well, we often make lists. Yeah, I'm the list maker. And we're talking about what we'd like to talk about. And I know in February, which has already happened, by the time you get to see this, we're going to talk about tradition. And, and Julie is such an expert on Amish quilts who make very traditional quilts in, within their tradition. And I'm going to show some quilts that have their own tradition. So it's mostly, you know, they're kind of vague to start with. And then we just sort of flesh it out. And then we invite someone. For, we have room for a guest, someone who's sort of an expert at that aspect of it. But tradition, we, and we love to contrast contemporary and, and antiques too. But I think it's important to also, we haven't brought this up, how much a part of women's history quilts are and how it's so hard to tell the stories of women's lives because they're so unrecorded. But you can take a quilt and know something about the woman and you can find remarkable, through the internet now, remarkable facts about her and how she lived and what she did and how she doesn't fit your stereotype of a, of a 19th century woman's life. Yeah. You know, everyone says everyone was married, so they didn't need to work. Well, everyone was married, but not at any one particular time. People got married, their husbands died, they ran off, they got divorced. And at any one particular time, there were thousands and thousands of women making livings using quilts. So that's my favorite topic is, is the idea of making a living making quilts. Yeah. And I was actually really fascinated by, of course, the two Harriet Powers quilts side by side at the MFA, the stitches and the stories. And she was even telling some stories that she'd heard before she was born that it happened. But there was one interesting tidbit that came out of that. And this is what's so great about all of you together is that you can find these tidbits in history. I heard that it may have been believed that she was illiterate. And then it came to light that she had written a letter that proved that she was literate. And so those little tidbits, I love that. So Alden, what what do you think you'd like to see coming up? Well, I always love to expand outside of the strict world of quilts because I come to it from fashion and the decorative arts. And so my big soapbox is getting quilters to look at other forms of textiles and other forms of decorative arts. So I would love to do some more presentations that take a quilt or quilts or a quilt motif or something like that and show how it relates to other aesthetic trends going on at the time. Or for example, embroidery. I'm also in charge of the needlework and samplers at the DAR. And so now I'm very into those. And there are a lot of quilts that had embroidered motifs on them. So I'd like to do a little bit more um, of that crossover in the future. Yeah. Okay. And how about you, Debbie? Do you have any topics you'd love to see explored? Well, my favorite these days, especially is Baltimore album quilts, which were made primarily in and around Baltimore itself between about 1842 and 1860. Amazingly enough, about 400 of those have survived, but probably even more than that. And so I look for 
historical material that will try to answer some of the questions of who these women were and why were they making them. You would be surprised at how little there is. It's just the sorts of things that surface in diaries and letters, and there are precious few of those. So the main thing that we are having to um, depend on these days is just visual analysis of the quilts themselves. And it is surprising that even after all this time, Baltimore album quilts from this era still appear at auction and in the public that have never been seen before. They've just come out of people's attics and basements. And every year I would say five or six new ones appear. So I am really hopeful that one of these at some point is going to be uh, a big key to unlock some of the mysteries as to who made them and why were there so many? Mm -hmm. and they're of such high quality. The Rosetta Stone. Yes, yes, that's exactly what we're looking for. A fabric Rosetta Stone, or even a signature, a, a batch of signatures on a quilt might tell us who, who did them and uh, maybe who was the designer, something yeah. of that sort. So I keep my eyes open. I, I just keep looking every place possible. Yeah, it's so interesting. And there was an incredible quilt at the MFA that was a vote quilt with signatures all over it. And that intern who did do all that research, she only found one or two actual names that really had some kind of meaning. And so it's fascinating how one little name could unlock the secret or the key to the history behind that quilt. Okay, so how about you, Mary Kay? Do you have a topic that you are, that's your favorite that you'd love to see coming up on your quilt talks? Well, the Sears Quilt Contest continues to resonate with me. I think it's really interesting that, like Debbie says, 24,000 quilts were made for that contest in 1933 with the Chicago World's Fair. Yeah. Sears sponsored it. And yet we've only found 200 we've actually seen and maybe 250 to 300 that we find, found some reference to in written materials. It's, it's a great way to look at women right at a at kind of a gateway in the 30s, what they were doing, how the quilts changed so dramatically right about then. Sears had an opportunity to really give the grand prize to an original pattern. It might have been, you know, quilt making in the 20th century might have veered off into a really modern looking type uh, style, but it didn't, you know, well, it, I mean, people still did their own thing, but there was an enormous number of printed patterns that caught the fancy of most of the women making quilts around the country. And so, that, yeah, one of the quilts that I once owned was in that, that Boston Museum of Fine Arts show, the uh, one with the bird's eye view of the World's Fair. The grounds, yeah. And the story behind that, wasn't it that, that it was a man who actually made it in yeah. the end, an architect or something like that? Yes, yes. Fascinating. And Barbara and I, Barbara saw that quilt first as a black and white photo in the Sears archives. It was such a high quality photo that we could read the, that little label that you were able to read still yeah. at that museum. And it said it was made by Mrs. Louise Rowley. But I ended up, the quilt ended up being sold at auction after our book came out. And Barbara and I had never seen it in color. And so I went to the auction. It happened to be in North Georgia, not far from me, where I live. 
and I walked in, saw that quilt. It was like, wow. wow. And I was not going to purchase it, but I ended up getting it. <laughs> and then when they handed me the quilt, in the, it was a big auction house. People were calling in bids. And I remember when I got the auction, when I got the high bid, they applauded. <laughs> By this point, everybody in the room knew that I might have some connection. Well, he was holding up my book. you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> so there was no way I was you know, going to be a secret kind of bidder. But anyway, I was glad. I, but when I went back to pick up the quilt, there was this note on the top of the quilt. And it said, this quilt was made by Richard Rowley, not made by his mother, Louise Rowley, but made by him, wow. Richard yeah. Rowley. Well, the name was so common and it took five, oh, way over five, a long time till I finally figured out who it was. And Oh. He died right near that auction house. Wow. How he went from Chicago to, he ended up being an architect in California mm-hmm. and back to Georgia. It's a wild story. Well, and it's an incredible quilt. It's really neat to see it in person and hear the yeah. stories. Okay, let's go back to Julie. What would you like to see coming up? You've had lots of time to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I'm currently working on finding out more information about quilts that that I know partial history of. I am a dealer, I buy and sell, but I also have my own collection. And in my collection are quilts that came to me with very interesting stories that I really haven't had until recently, the time to follow up. For example, I have four quilts that were made, purportedly made by a woman named Hetty Wanner in Pennsylvania and were sold to me Um, many, many years ago by a Pennsylvania picker um, with the story that these quilts, which had once been the vibrant uh, colors of Pennsylvania quilts, were, they now looked pewter. The, the, The overall look of the quilt was pewter, even though there were fabrics behind the pewter that I could see were once very bright. And the story that came with these quilts was that Hetty Wanner in her menopause had become severely depressed. She had made these bright, colorful quilts in her youth, but during menopause, she kind of lost it. And they tell stories that the family said she gouged out pieces of dirt in her windowsill. Very obsessive behavior. And she dyed her quilts black, which turned them pewter. And I own four of these quilts. I don't even know if the know-it-alls know that I have these quilts. I know her name. I know the story that came with the quilts. I got three from one person and one from another who had been at the same auction. And my goal for coming up one is to delve into who she was and how true that story is and what we can find out more about it. And a few others of my quilts that I know only partially the story that may or may not be accurate. So yeah. Well, I, w- I want to ask you if you have listeners, followers, fans who do they come back and say, oh, we want to hear about this or we want to know more about this. Do you get requests? I'm asking because I have a request. <laughs> oh, good. Thank you so much. We love well, it. I just think I just sort of wanted to say that if there was something I would want to hear that I think would be fascinating, and I'm probably not going to give you enough information about it, but I can research it a bit further. But I had Kathy Miller, the singing quilter from Canada in BC, oh, yeah. Canada. She came with me on my quilting cruise in 2015, and she brought her guitar and she did all these lovely songs. But she has this one song about women 
who were going to jail somewhere on a boat and they were being taken away and they were being taught to quilt to give them a skill on that boat. And it was such a fascinating song. And I want to hear a little more about it. I want to learn about that a little bit more about the history of that and why they did that. And, you know, why may perhaps why they thought it was a short term thing that they would be out in the public again after a needed Uh, skill. We all know about that. Do you really? Oh, yeah. well, I, be- I bet it's uh, being transported to Australia, but they yeah. probably already had some skills because almost every girl was taught basic needlework skills as a child. Yeah. Well, That's- Kathy Miller, she came to, I, I remember her calling talking to me. She talked to a lot of AQSG people oh, and she came to one of the seminars. And so she, there's a paper written about that. And so she was looking for ideas for story, for her songs. Mm-hmm. And this is fabulous. I mean, if another generation, if you are intrigued by them, yeah. this is what we're hoping is happening. We're we're all in the last, well, anyway, we're going to be fine. But, you know, <laughs> we want another good. new generation of people to hook into yeah. this. You know, I think the stories, that story Julie just said, oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, they're yeah. here. You know, it's once fabulous. you start digging into a quilt, you you hear these stories. Well, it's just wonderful, Brandy, to hear your experience going to MFA, Boston mm-hmm. Museum of Fine yeah. Art, for mm-hmm. anybody yeah. who didn't get that. And you being another generation, to get excited about it. There are three, by the way, that are on YouTube that are free. Some okay. of the early ones that we did, you can just type in six know-it-alls on YouTube and see three of them, I think. And if it excites any of you, look into American Quilt Study Group. It's a wonderful um, group that meets annually, as Debbie said, and we bond. We really bond and we bring information to these seminars. And occasionally somebody will have something else that explains, you know, somebody will bring something to a show and tell and say, I just can't figure out blah, blah, blah. And somebody else will say, I have one that has that same order and blah, blah. It's fabulous. It's really wonderful. And it's socially wonderful. And it's intellectually really stimulating. Yeah. And I love it. When I heard of you guys for the first time, I was just like, what? This exists. This is so great because, you know, I, as a quilter, I've always thought it was really important to share the heritage of quilting with little children. And that's why I wrote my children's picture book. But since I've been at the MFA this year, I've really realized it's really important to share the heritage of quilters with quilters of this age and of a younger generation that are not infants or children, you know, so all ages, we really need to know the history. So let's just review a little bit where everyone can find you. So they can go to quiltdistrict.com. They can also go on YouTube to look at six know-it-alls. And Alden, did you have something else to say about sharing the heritage of quilting? Well, I was just going to say the wonderful thing about the quilt world is it hasn't been taken over by academia. You know, it isn't all highfalutin, you know, theory and and jargon. At AQSG, you meet people who are, some of them are at universities, some of them are at museums, but many are independent know-it-alls like Barbara and the others here who are, who just bring decades of in-depth knowledge and personal research. I mean, the, the brain trust in those rooms, I always say, are, is just amazing. You know, how much information is in a gathering of, of people at an AQSG gathering. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's very unpretentious and everybody has a great deal of knowledge and passion that she or he brings to the gathering. And it's very welcoming and not at all intimidating. And nobody should feel as if it's some kind of academic conference because it absolutely is not. 
And as okay. much knowledge as, as um, that brain trust holds, it's so inclusive. People can yes. come who've never, ever, they're just interested. And every, exactly. it's so inclusive and welcoming. Beginners are welcome. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. That sounds really great. Okay. So we've used a couple acronyms along the way. So can Alden, can you tell us what those spell out to mean? So AQSG is the American Quilt Study Group. And as far as I know, it's really the only organization here in the U.S. and based on women who can prove their heritage back to somebody who supported the revolution. But they have their headquarters here in Washington, and they have a wonderful decorative arts museum, which includes a collection of quilts, many of which are quite early. The majority are pre-1850s, as well as, you know, paintings and ceramics and clothing and lots of other things. So that's, that's what the DAR is. Okay, now we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to dive into a few interesting topics, maybe some myths about caring for quilts or quilt history, what brings the six know-it-alls joy, and of course, the lightning round robin. So we'll be right back. Northcott Fabrics are famous to quilters for their Stonehenge and O Canada collections. Right here on this podcast, we give away fabric from Northcott Collections, Banyan Batiks, and Figo Fabrics. Look for all of these at your local quilt shop. Northcott, cottons that feel like silk. People are getting back into the world of travel and loving it. It's not too late to sign up for my trip to the UK this August for a tour of England and Wales and two full days at the Festival of Quilts Birmingham. I'll be featuring the Cave Facet Collective on the podcast every Tuesday in August, and it has just been announced that his work will be featured at the show. You know what that means. You never know. He might even make an appearance. I'll be the first to let you know. I'm so excited to get on the road and have some fun, and I'd love to have you join me. Go to quilteronfire.com slash events or call Judy directly at Opulent Quilt Journeys at 1-877-235-3767 to find out more and book your trip today. And we are back, ladies, and I want to talk about some of your, I don't know, common misconceptions quilters have, or if you have a pet peeve about heritage quilts, caring for quilts, anything goes really. If there's something that you'd love to share, like don't do this for your quilt or anything, just go for it. So who wants to go first? It's a pretty simple thing, but some people don't understand. Do not keep your quilts in plastic. Ah. You can transport them old or new. You can transport them in plastic, but plastic traps moisture. And if you leave it in plastic for too long, it will get mildewed or otherwise um, be damaged. Oh, that's a great point. Does anyone have anything else? Be sure to document your quilts. I mean, ah. put, a, put something, a, a label, usually a cloth label, attach it to the back of your quilt, name, maybe title of the quilt, who made it, whatever, just because I guarantee you, if there is a label on a quilt in a hundred years, that quilt will probably still be there and somebody will find it and will be tempted like we all are to find out who made it. So, mm -hmm. you know, you're assuring a little bit of immortality, is that the word? And it's important, I think, for people to document. Yes, I do have a few quilts that I own that were made by my great grandmother and always she used liquid embroidery in her quilts and always she had words on her quilts and the date and her name and everything. So I just really appreciate that because it kind of proves to me, you know, this is my family heritage. So Alden, how about you? You go next. 
I would say for preservation purposes, go easy on the adhesives and the machine embroidery. I see a lot of modern quilts that have so much mo uh, machine embroidery, it looks like a jigsaw saw puzzle and that's, that's just going to start falling apart. And I don't even want to know what all of those adhesives, those are not archival, they're great for now, but they're not going to be around in a hundred years and they could damage both, both fabrics that are involved. So just, you know, make that choice if you want to, but know that it, it's not necessarily a looking ahead a hundred years choice. Yes, I did get that advice from a mentor one time about adhesives, never use any adhesives in your fine art quilts. And what she told me to do was create the entire quilt with no adhesives, and then use poster board and actually do stitches through the poster board and mount the poster board on something. So you can always take mm. the, the quilt off the poster board. So mm. I thought that was interesting. I was even thinking of two two fabrics glued together. Uh -huh, like fusible. That's not going to be you know, spray glue. Yeah, yeah, spray oh. adhesive in your batting. A lot of people use yeah. that. Yeah. So you think it can kind of break down the fibers, hey? Well, I don't even know because I'm not a chemist. I'm not a conservator, but I know that all those chemicals are not going to react well over time with the dyes and the fabric. And they yeah. turn brown. It's oh. a ticking time bomb. It's going to turn brown. It's going to be brittle. It's going to split. I don't even know. It's just a ticking time bomb. Good old fashioned pin basting is a good way to go, I guess, hey? Okay, how about you, Debbie? Do you have any pet peeves or anything that you, if there was one thing you could share, what would it be? Well, I would like to just um, second what Mary Kay had to say, document those quilts. And the thing that I do with, which may be something to suggest is that with each of mine, I develop a little envelope that I can hang on the hanger with it that has quilts that are similar quilts that may have come before the ones that the pattern that I've have or variations of it and I wonder if people couldn't do that with the quilts that they're making now is document the process to some degree yeah. show your inspiration show uh, keep um, a record or cutouts pictures that have things of that have inspired you or things that are similar to it yeah. and keep it with the quilt and that way the information will not be lost. Yeah, those are some great tips. And how about you, Barbara? Well, I'm thinking of antique quilts, you know, and you get so many laundry tips that are so bad. Like one of them is you can't bleach a quilt, but you can use lemon juice on it. Now, oh. many people do it all the time. They brush lemon juice on a spot. The thing is, lemon juice is very acidic and that's why it takes spots out. But it also affects many dyes um, and just discharges them. And, you know, if you have a valuable quilt that's valuable to you and it's an antique, you need, you need professional advice before you wash it. I've known so many people who say, well, I'm just going to put it in the machine on low. Oh, God. And then when they take it out, all the turkey red is shredded. Oh, no. So, it's, so be very careful in laundering them. Better to have them dirty. Yeah. <laughs> Although that your mother wouldn't have told you that, but better to have them slightly dirty Listen, than to have all the turkey red shreds. Benign neglect is a wonderful yeah. uh, strategy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And everything shrinks at a different rate, right? Even if you pre-wash your fabrics, but you didn't wash the batting and then you wash the quilt, it's all shriveled up. Or, you know, if you don't wash the, like, how do you ever know when you're going to wash it? So it's better to just care for it so well that you don't have to wash it, right? And be right. very careful with wool. If you've got a quilt that's wool uh, batting, 
Yeah. Do not wash it in hot water or put it in the dryer. It will, yeah. it will uh, get wonky. It'll become felted, <laughs> It'll right? Shrink yeah. Out. Yeah. yeah. Except the cotton stays the same size. Uh, right. Interesting. We've seen okay. many examples. Yeah. Okay. So I love to ask this question of all of my creative friends that I have on the podcast. What brings you joy in the world of quilts? So, you know, I'll go one by one by you guys. What, what is it about this world that we live in, in quilting that brings you joy? Who wants to start? Well, I'll tell you, you know, the past couple of years have been tough, <laughs> as you might notice. And when I used to watch the news, you know, I get so angry and just so frustrated. And I found that just doing the genealogy on someone who lived in 1852, it, it I just would prefer to be there. That's also because I know how the Civil War worked out. You know, I know who won. Yeah. So there's no suspense there. But if I, if I find myself getting angry, I just go, I think I'll find some woman's tombstone and see what I can find out. About <laughs> and four or five hours later, I'm the happiest woman in the world. And I've solved another mystery. Oh, that's great. How about you, Alden? What brings you joy? Yeah, I have to say I am a real history geek. I just love the research. I just really love the deep dive into these things and trying to put together the clues and find out more about the, the maker's life. Barbara kind of stole my answer, but I'm going to say that anyway. And I just love getting really into the weeds of doing the research and then widening it out to, you know, put it in a wider context about why did she move from this state to that territory around that time. What was happening there? What, what was typical about that? Were other members of her family or community doing that? You know, I just like putting it all in context. Yeah, that's context really cool. is the word. You're good at context. You know, I think that comes from your costume background too. Possibly. You know the fabric market at the time, you know the fashion market. Yeah. So. Okay, how about you, Mary Kay? What brings you joy? I think it's getting to know a particular woman at a particular time, I never would have known, maybe even, a, yeah, probably in a different context, different class. I didn't grow up in the South, but I just, even this morning, a, a woman, I haven't even told it, know it all about this, a woman, a young woman called and said she had fabric from her grandmother and I said quilts and she said yes and I but she said da 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 and I said well why don't you just send me a picture and oh my gosh it was it's just a, a plain utilitarian quilt and it's wool it has tiny little embroidery on it and I mean the woman could have just made a big square block quilt but she added the decorative touch mm. this you know, to, I brought joy to that woman, the granddaughter, and to the family. She brought me joy, the connection over the generations. That happens a lot with quilts. And I'm eager to show it to everybody in this group. And that's where I get the kicks even. Yes, I still do. I've done it a lot. And I think it's it's the joy of doing quilt history and collecting quilts and researching them. Mary Kay has a reputation that should be standing in the line of the bank. Somebody will say, Mary Kay, I want you to see this quilt. And it turns out to be spectacular. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. And she brings a lot of joy to other people. Yeah. So let's go over to Debbie. What brings you joy? 
Well, I love the treasure hunt aspect of finding quilts, going right to the farm and talking to the family, especially because very often there are star family members at a sale. And I'm much more interested in the family relationships and in buying something that has a background like that. Oh, and especially if one is signed, but that is what unlocks the history is gathering all that information and hopefully being successful in buying it. And there's actually sometimes a chance to buy some of the other things, as Alden was saying. Uh, there are other decorative arts that are associated with the quilts. In one case, I bought two quilts from a family in uh, Southern Pennsylvania, and she had also made some hooked rugs. So I was able to buy a hooked rug and at that sale, even a photograph of her. So that is the treasure hunt and invitation to and ability to find out more about the background of the family and the quilt maker is, is really the draw. Yeah. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. And it reminds me of Kim and Nisha that I had on my podcast from Brimfield Awakening. You may, uh, you may have heard of them, but they had such a lovely story about finding this orphan block or two, a few orphan blocks, Mm -hmm. and they blossomed to do an entire business out of it. So that's kind Mm -hmm. of a really nice story about a younger generation of quilters taking something old and making it new and really having a, a lot of fun with it. So let's go over to Julie. We don't want to miss out on Julie. What brings you joy? Well, I think it's wonderful how you asked all of us and you get a sense of how we all bring something a little bit different to this and take something away. Mary Kay mentioned connection, and that makes me think about how important connection and relationship is to women. And for me, it's about connection. It's it's connecting to the past, as, as we've mentioned, but it's also connecting to the people who share my passion in the moment. And that would be the the know-it-alls, of course, but it's a much broader world. I have a little shop here that I just opened after 40 years of not having a shop. I opened a shop 50 years ago this year and just recently opened a shop. And I'm in a nice little neighborhood in Berkeley. And I've made so many friends. (laughs) I can't tell you how many people stop by and just want to talk about quilts. Oh. Their grandmother's quilt, or they make quilts, or did I know the person down the street? Connecting to other human beings is, I guess, my major passion, and quilts help me do that. I was just thinking about a story real quickly. I had a friend who, this is about 30 years ago, became ill and needed chemotherapy down in Stanford, and I drove her down for each of her treatments. And one time, I had a shop at the time, so I guess it was more than 40 years ago. And one time I had a quilt top, I had to wait for her. And I had a quilt top that I was actually taking apart for various reasons. And I, sitting in the waiting room, which I had sat in many times at this point, where all these people were waiting to chemotherapy and it was like, everybody was tense. Nobody talked to anybody. It was so cold and scary and it was terrible. And it just happened to need to take this quilt top apart. And I had a, a ripper and I was sitting there. And what happened? Somebody said, what are you doing? And I said, told them what I was doing. I said, my grandmother. Oh, and then this one said, wait a minute, my sister-in-law. All of a sudden, everybody was talking and it warmed that room and it made it more human. Quilts are a vehicle, I think, for people to connect in various ways. And I took something with me every time since then. I mean, after that, 
it was it, it made a big impression on me all those years ago and it sticks with me oh that's so great quilts are the, you know almost everybody has only positive associations with them and that's the what i mean by a vehicle it's like it's so unthreatening and it so reminds you of grandma or i i just think they're wonderful in that way and that's a big part of it for me Yeah. Okay. Now, before we start to wrap things up, I have a little something special I like to do with all my guests. It's a series of rapid fire questions, and it's going to be interesting to do it with five of you, but we'll just quickly go around. So, so the first question is what is the quilt sort of project or history item that you are working on right now? What's top of mind for you right now? So let's start up with Barbara. What what are you thinking about most currently? Well, I make fabric for Moda. And they asked me to do another William Morris line. So I'm completely immersed in William Morris and the 19th century aesthetic movement. And, you know, I just love his fabric. Just love his fabric. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Congratulations on that. It sounds nice. Like you're taking a little bit of history and bringing it into a modern fabric. Great. You know, I have to know who designed it. You can't just say William Morris. He had many people working for him and many of them were women. And I want those women to get that credit. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And Alden, what's top of mind for you right now in the quilting world? I am very immersed in doing research and choosing objects from the DAR collection and starting to reach out for loans for my 2024 exhibition, which will be on sewing and how that was a huge part of women's lives. Almost every woman was taught to sew, sew, sometimes against her will. And so I'm looking at this exhibit, which will combine clothing domestic textiles like sheets and tablecloths, quilts and and samplers and other pictorial needlework so that I can really do a whole range of objects that are about the role sewing played in women's lives. Yeah, that sounds really good. And how about you, Mary Kay? What's top of mind for you right now? I'm back into the 30s and I'm, well, we're doing something with the know-it-alls that I'm working on. Uh, I'm going to look back at soft covers for hard times and talk about some of the things we might have, we call it, we got wrong, but maybe, anyway, it's the 1930s. And this summer, Nancy Page, a fictitious named columnist, really Florence Legank, Harris is her real name, is being inducted into the Quilters Hall of Fame. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to help put together a quilt exhibit of quilts that uh, were made for patterns. It was a nationally syndicated pattern column in the uh, 1930s and 40s. And so I'm thinking back a lot at patterns of the 30s and it's my favorite era, but I like everything. Oh, that's great. And where will that exhibit take place? Marion, Indiana, the middle weekend of um, July. And it's, it's a great place to go for, it's kind of like a mini AQSG seminar it's okay. easy to get to. It's usually hot, but, and there are lectures and vendors and workshops and exhibits. Diane Gadowski is the 2022 honoree this summer. And the legacy honoree is Nancy Page. Wow. Well, Florence Legank Harris is the woman's real name. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. Okay. And Debbie, how about you? What's top of mind for you right now? I have a very large backlog of old quilts that need a little bit of repair. And sometimes it's more than just a little. And so, of course, I've collected period fabrics just for that purpose. The problem is getting it all done. 
I used to joke, especially to my family, when they would ask, how long is this going to take you? I used to say, well, I could be under house arrest for a year and still not be finished. <laughs> well, that happened during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Two years. It's been two years and I'm nowhere near finished. Oh, no, it didn't But work. I'm working on it. <laughs> oh, that's good. Okay, let's move on over to Julie. How about you? Well, the know-it-alls are actually doing a study center for the American Quilt Study Group in February. And these study groups at the American Quilt Study Group are just wonderful. And any of you who want to research it, you can go to AmericanQuiltStudyGroup.org, I think, and find out about these upcoming study centers, which are just varied and, and interesting and exciting. The one we're doing is based on, as Mary Kay suggested, some mistakes that we've made in the past in our research, some of it published. And I am going to talk about a quilt that I got 180% wrong. It has to do with women's rights, a 19th century women's rights quilt. And I got it all wrong. And I'm excited to be able to correct myself yeah. and correct the history. And i uh, that's what I'm working on at the moment. Oh, that is fascinating. And that's so funny. That leads me right into my next question in this lightning round, Robin. And so I wanted to ask each of you, is there some controversial topic you love to tackle or talk about or something that, you know, something <laughs> controversial, like, you know, like right now there's a huge trend of cutting up old quilts and making them into coats, for instance. So oh, is, God. Oh. is there some kind of controversial thing that really is a bee in your bonnet? Let's start with Barbara. Well, don't get me started. <laughs> the idea that quilts were code on the Underground Railroad. I have tried for 30 years to uh, get rid of this idea by presenting alternatives that are factual. This is not true. No one's ever found a shred of evidence. And I also do a lot of giving people alternatives. Like that's what I'm doing right now. This is for a block of the month applique called Freedom's Friend about true stories about the Underground Railroad uh -huh. in Philadelphia, particularly. And so that's my hobby horse that I get on. And as I say, don't get me started. I'll have to. <laughs> well, I'll there was a quilt, down. there was a quilt and statue and a whole installation there at the MFA about that. And I actually mm. read that and had never heard anything about the history of it from looking at the statue and the quilt. And like, it was a deconstructed quilt that was reconstructed. And it was, it was a completely sort of bashed type of figure in front of it. And from the read up, I got the idea that, you know, there was quilts used in the underground railroad as markers. And so I left there thinking that's an interesting topic. And then when I went to the Houston quilt festival, I was talking to, I think, the current president of Sakwa, and I was like, mm -hmm. that was in Sanford Biggers was a really interesting display. And she's like, no, that's not happening again, is it? So it's really an interesting topic. You know, there are different people out there saying different things. So it's nice to know what the real deal is, according to the research that's been found, right? Mm -hmm. And this yeah. is not just quilt history people who say this. This is African-American history people, uh, historians of African-American history, historians on, of the Underground Railroad. There is zero evidence for it. And it, it ultimately demeans the, the true story of, of the true courage of, of people who, who managed to escape. But yeah. the, CIA, the CIA once had on their website, a story of the Underground Railroad and the code and quilt. Oh, gee. I mean, I, I could say, what else don't they know? 
Yeah, really. <laughs> well, it's yeah. a story. It's a story that captures the imagination somehow because it kind of makes white people the saviors, and right. and I think that it somehow um, assuages some guilt or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the you know the true story is much more interesting and powerful. But Far more interesting. Yeah, yeah. but I, it, it's a story of fooling, fooling the, the authorities. It's sort of the underdogs are, are winning with the help of the nice white people. And, you know, so it, it, it hits various bells that make us feel better about history. Yeah, but it just isn't true. Well, and the true story is so much more interesting and brave and courageous and amazing. Yeah, fascinating. Is someone else ready to chat on this topic? When we did quilt myths, I talked about the deliberate error. There's a a widespread belief that women of the past put deliberate errors in their quilts because I'm not perfect. And we talked a lot about it and showed a lot of examples. And we, so far, there is no documented evidence that, so that would be primary material, letters, journals, diaries, autobiographies of women in the past before anything was written about quilts, direct uh, documentation from 19th century women or even early 20th century women, where somebody, you find a letter that says, dear sister Sarah, I'm just finishing my quilt and I've turned this triangle around because only God is perfect and there is no evidence whatsoever. And there's lots of evidence that there are people who make mistakes and leave them in. I mean, so that's, that's one of mine there. That is fascinating. I mean, because, you know, over the last 30 years, I've heard again and again, oh, every quilt's supposed to have a, a mistake. Don't worry about it. But it's because someone made a mistake and they're on Facebook saying, oh my gosh, I made a mistake. And then everybody's like, oh, don't worry. You need to have a quilt mistake anyway. <laughs> well, that's, that's the thing. I mean, I think that I'm not, I don't actually quilt. I sew, but I don't quilt. You know, I'm sure that every quilter will say you don't need to deliberately put a, a mistake in there because there will be a mistake because we're all <laughs> imperfect. I mean, come on, you can't make something the size of a quilt and not have a mistake. So it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, it's so, so funny. Okay, how about you, Debbie? Do you have sort of a a pet peeve or a controversial topic you like to tackle? Well, in one of my know-it-alls presentations, I talked about improvisational quilts, and it has come to be assumed since the G's Bend exhibitions, which covered many years, that improvisation was primarily either a Southern or an African-American characteristic of quilt making, and it really isn't. And it just takes a little bit of digging to find out that they were done pretty much everywhere. And a lot of it had to do with your your lack of wealth, your access to fabric, the time that you were able to spend at it. And I compared side by side Southern and some Southern and some African-American quilts with ones that I have just found in Maryland and Pennsylvania, very similar, but they were not as valued in the old days as they are now. But people are noticing that that's, they were made many, many places. And so that myth is fortunately beginning to turn around. Mm. Very interesting. And how about you, Mary Kay? Well, you did mention cutting up the fabric and the jackets. Yeah. About three years ago, the Alliance for American Quilts asked me to interview Emily Bode, B-O-D-E. And, you know, she's the one very young woman who did start, she makes a menswear, she focuses on menswear. And 
she was dressing them in patchwork jackets and pants, very expensive. So it was a very interesting interview. I I felt like I was sticking my neck out to ask her. I think she was kind of, she wasn't sure what she was going to get from me because I think a lot of quilt historians have kind of, at that time, were kind of pushing back. Oh, we don't want this. And I did, I mean, I, I would say I went out on the sidewalks and protested. I did actually protest when, you know, in the 80s, late 80s and 90s, when quilts were being reproduced in by Smithsonian in China. Right. And even before that, when quilt fashion designers were dresses, cutting up old quilts and putting them um, in skirts, I even saw, you know, upholstery. It was just, it was a terrible thing. And I, I protested then. And she but dragged me along. But I have me. to admit that after I talked to Emily and determined her joy is the same that we all feel. I mean, yeah, she yeah. realizes there's a story in these quilts. And in a way, she's preserving the legacy of the quilt. She knows that there is a problem of cutting these up. <laughs> but what she was doing was she would create, she would have people create tops. They may have been made in India and then she brought them back and then her company would cut them up into jackets. I felt like that was probably not so bad. And, but even she is concerned about, she actually puts a barcode on the tags that go with the, the clothing, the jackets. And it, if it is a real quilt, I mean, she will document where it comes from on the barcode and things mm -hmm. like that. But she told me that she gets huge amounts of people are donating tops and stuff, goodwill sensor stuff. So she has a lot of stuff to choose from. And it's she she seems very careful with it. I've seen it, other people do it. It's it is a big deal right now. And in a way, my feelings have softened. I feel mm -hmm. like they are giving the quilts a second life. And yeah. they're using a brand, a quilt in mint condition that might okay. have historical importance. Yeah. But a, but a quilt that has damaged areas, I have no problem with that. You can't save all of them. Some of those makers who are cutting up quilts for jackets, not high fashion like Emily Bodie, but those people all over the place on Etsy, yeah. et cetera, they yeah. often don't know what they're cutting up. And it could be something important. I wish they would ask us each time before they took their scissors to it. Because we are, after all, the know-it-alls. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, Alden, I'm coming back to you. Oh, there are lots of little myths that bother me. If you read any of the early quilt history books in the 1920s and 30s, they are, almost every single generalization they make, it should be subjected to severe scrutiny and, and taken with huge amounts of salt. But I'll just throw to, um, out a couple. One is this whole thing about, oh, every bride had 12 quilts plus one. I mean, that's just completely bogus. There's absolutely no documentation for that. The other thing is, oh, if it has hearts, it was obviously made for a bride. Well, Maybe, maybe not. Hearts were a popular decorative motif. It doesn't mean it was a wedding quilt. People made quilts for many reasons other than uh, in preparation for your own or someone else's wedding. And oh, if it's black and white, it must be a mourning quilt. That's not a thing. That's not a thing. <laughs> black and white 
fabrics were very popular at you know the turn of the 20th century and a lot of people used black and white a lot of people used blue and white it doesn't mean it was a temperance quilt so beware of uh making broad generalizations yeah that's a great point okay so i'm going to ask each of you to name one quilt and it could be a name or you could describe it anything but uh, one quilt that just has had a really huge significance on your life. One that is just most meaningful. You could be one you've made, one you've seen, one you've bought, one you've sold, but if there's one quilt. So I see Julie smiling already. <laughs> do you have one already or do you need a minute? <laughs> I need a minute. Okay. Is anyone ready to answer that one? Oh, I can. Okay. Debbie? At an auction some years ago, I saw 1840-ish or so red and white quilt. The red was a, a very nice print, but it had... Oh, it had some damage. It had been washed many times, but it was covered with names. And I wanted to maybe buy it for a very low price and research the names. It had a slightly uh, Quaker look to me. Just by the sound of the names, I thought it could have been Quaker. But when the price got to $75, I thought, oh, <laughs> I'm not going to buy this rack. Well, I did. <laughs> so then, of course, I had to research it. And the main name on it was Yarnell, Y-A-R-N-A-L-L. -L, and they, in fact, were Quakers. And they turned up in the Delaware Valley of Pennsylvania, which is where a lot of early Quaker quilts come from. There it was a website about with Yarnell genealogy. And one particular man was very helpful in helping me trace all the names. So, yeah, you guessed it. I had to sell it to him. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. And just imagine you had that moment where you didn't want to spend that extra few dollars and then yes. it turned out to be so and incredible. He was thrilled. This is he, you know, the family is large. He has no idea how this got to where it ended up. And he was very happy to have it back in the family. Yeah. Okay, great. So who else is ready to go with a significant quilt? Well, I have a, what changed my life was not a quilt, but a package of quilt patterns cut out of the newspaper. Oh, interesting. And when I was young, maybe 19, went to the thrift store and there was a package from the Kansas City Star in the 30s. And there were a hundred patterns in there. So I had to have it. I think I paid probably 50 cents. And then I started sorting them out. I'm going to make this one. I'm going to make that one. And I, I mean, it just made me, I just love pattern and it just hit something with me. So yeah. that's sort of how I started sorting them all out. Okay, go ahead, Alden. My quilt would be two quilts that are personal to my family. I never thought we had quilters in our family, but when I was pregnant with my first child, many years before I started being in charge of the quilt collection, my mother gave me this crib quilt, which she said her mother had made. And it's a kit quilt from the 1930s with you know the circus, circus characters all over it. And I hung it on the wall, not in direct sunlight and in conservation approved method and only for one year for my daughter's room. And then again, for a short period for my second daughter. But we later found, as we were clearing out my grandfather's attic, getting ready for him to move, we found a 1930s quilt packed away. And we asked my grandfather, what is this? And it turns out to have been made not by his wife, my grandmother, but by his mother, my oh. great grandmother, whom I never met. And it was made as a wedding present for my grandparents. And it just sort of wasn't my grandmother's style. 
And it was sort of, you know, too country for her decorating style. And it got put away and never used. And I figure that clearly if she was a quilter, I've since been in touch with cousins on that side of the family. Yes, she made many quilts and none of them survive, it turns out, because everyone used them. So as sad as it was that this was packed away all these many years because my grandmother didn't appreciate it, now we have it, we appreciate it. We have these two quilts by this great grandmother of mine. And, and I really cherish rediscovering that, that history. Oh, that's so wonderful. Okay, who have we got still, Mary Kay? I remember when I first moved to Tennessee and I would go out on Saturdays to garage sales and I went to visit to look at a quilt at this woman's house. Her name was Willie Ashley. And she had a pretty a purple quilt, a lot like what I have kind of behind me. And that's what she was selling. And so she, and then she took me to the basement. And down in the basement, here was this brown wool woven cloth quilt stuffed in the corner. And I had been a weaver. So I was kind of drawn to that. I pulled it out and I said, what is this? And she said, oh, that's a Lindsay quilt. And I said, oh, you mean Lindsay Woolsey in that know-it-all kind of tone. <laughs> this was 1977 in Knoxville. Mm -hmm. And she said, honey, you could call it what you want. We called it Lindsay. I said, <laughs> okay. I knew nothing about it. And see, I was a linguist and I accepted this. I thought, well, this is some kind of local term. And I spent many years, and she was right, in the diaries, in the estate sale records, in the 19th century, it was Lindsay that the people were weaving. And it would show up in the, a woman when she had to sometime, if her husband had died, she had to sometimes buy back the Lindsay cloth that she had woven. It was part of his dowry oh. or his inventory. So anyway, the quilt that impressed me, though, was soon after that, I went to see the Kentucky Quilt Project exhibition at, I think it was in Louisville, or maybe Frankfort, Kentucky. And I remember walking in, and here was that incredible Harvest Sun quilt that is on the front of their book, the Kentucky book, with this big circle in the center, and it was Lindsay. It was exactly the cloth that I had seen in that woman's basement in Knoxville. Wow. That quilt is really, on the cover of that book, is a very, very interesting Southern quilt. It's one of the paths I've gone down, one of the rabbit holes for a long mm -hmm. time. And I don't think people even knew what Southern Lindsay quilts were like. They just were not in those quilt books of the 1930s. Okay, good. Okay, so who have we missed? We haven't talked to Julie yet. So Julie, go ahead. Well, I want to go back to the first two quilts that I saw that just hit me like a, a two by four. Those two quilts that I first saw when I moved to California, one with enormous emotional content for Linda and one for aesthetic content for Pat. That really, I just knew at that moment, like really suddenly that I needed to pursue this. There wasn't very much written at the time. There were only a few books, but I just knew that I needed to take this path. And in fact, I did. I was a nursery school teacher. All three of us actually were nursery school teachers. And it changed the path of my life. I started collecting quilts with Linda, and then we opened a shop in uh, 1972 in San Rafael here in Marin County, 
Northern California. And, but that's another quilt that I think I should just refer to as one that changed my life. We named our store Mary Strickler's Quilt. Neither of us is named Mary Strickler, but it was named after a quilt that we had collected about a year before. In Michigan, we were able to purchase a very high style early quilt, uh, actually signed and dated Mary R. Strickler, 1834. It's just a spectacular, kind of a masterpiece quilt, Mariner's Compass with a uh, the alternate blocks are trapuntoed feathered wreaths. And we decided to hang that quilt on the wall in the shop and name the shop after the quilt. So the name of the shop was Mary Strickler's Quilt. And um, it certainly represents my moving in, broadening my experience with quilts from just collecting to buying and selling and studying. Oh, well, it's so nice to hear what individually kind of inspires you most. So I have one more question in this lightning round, Robin. Uh, and it's kind of interesting because usually the lightning round, Robin, is like a rapid fire series of five questions for one person, but we're doing it in a fun way. We're going to have all of you guys. So I would love to know if there was something in the history of quilting that you wish would be uncovered or found what would it be? Like if it's a tidbit of information, a name, if it was a quilt, another quilt of a collection, what would you love to be uncovered in the world of the history of quilting? Debbie, go first. <laughs> we know what Debbie's going to say. I've already um, alluded to this, but yeah. if, if only we could find the names of some of these women who designed and made kits for sale of these enormously complex Baltimore album, high style blocks. That would really be monumental for me. And I just hope it happens in my lifetime. Yeah, <laughs> all of us. I mean, that would be my first guess, my first choice. Yeah. Along the same those lines, I would be very delighted to find out whether enslaved women worked on those quilts that in the workshops that we presume were centered around the, that, that kind of home cottage industry in uh, Baltimore, whether uh, free blacks or enslaved women were hired or brought into the making of the quilts. And, and in fact, along those lines, whether enslaved women on plantations participated in making quilts with the mistress, the, the slave mistress, and or whether they made quilts for themselves, of which there are very few documented examples of quilts made by enslaved women. Fascinating. Okay, how about you, Mary Kay? Well, the chintz applique quilts that are stunning quilts, not quite as complex as the Baltimore album quilts, but and they appear in a particular area going down the Atlantic seacoast, but focus are kind of end up in Charleston, South Carolina and North Carolina, where a lot of these were made. It, the question is, you know, who started that style? Could they have been cottage industries like Barbara's really been interested in? Mm -hmm. They are so particular, the way they were cut up and arranged kind of in a center medallion style. And were they made by enslaved women? There's enormous amount of quilting on those quilts. You know, every time I look at a big quilt from the 19th century, that's what I'd like to know. Really, how many people worked on these quilts? I mean, if anybody's made a quilt by hand, you know the hours it takes the amount of 
I mean, are there enough hours in the day for a single person to make that? I, I really would like to have some more records about how those were made. It's the 19th century. There's a lot of things missing from the 19th century that we, that may not have a paper trail. Yeah. Okay. And how about you, Alden? What would you be thrilled to see uncovered? I wish that we could find, you know, a whole lot of diary or letter references in which women mentioned the names of the patterns of what they're quilting, because I don't even know whether they had names. Maybe they didn't. But, you know, most of the names we have are late 19th, early 20th century names. And what were they calling it when they were quilting it? And it may have had regional variations. We know that was true later on, too. But, you know, they never mention what the name of the pattern that they're cutting and applying is. So that would be my holy grail. Okay, great. And Barbara, you kind of touched on or agreed with Debbie, but did you have something else that you thought would be nice to be uncovered? I would love to find diary references or business records of people who had pattern businesses. We find, say, 10 samplers, same repeat, and this is the 1850s, but the same blocks, same variations on the border. How did they communicate that? Ah, Yeah, fascinating. Okay, great. So I want to, before we wrap up the show, I want to talk a little bit about what we're going to give away today. So the six know-it-alls have generously offered to give away a free complimentary ticket to one of their upcoming episodes. So if you're trying to remember how to get into the draw, go to the Tuesday podcast preview and you'll see everything there, the link to sign up for the giveaway. So you can get the giveaway on Tuesday at one o'clock. It goes for five days and we close it down on Sunday and choose a winner. Okay. So now as we wrap up today, this is always my final question for every podcast. I ask every guest this question and it is, what do you want quilters to take away most from our conversation today? So really, I guess what I'm saying is if there was, if you had one thing you could say to quilters worldwide about either history or conservation or anything, whether it's a pet peeve or just a little bit of advice, what's the one thing you would love to say to quilters? Okay, we'll start with Mary Kay. Mary Kay. Nothing is new under the sun. Okay. Oh, that's great. Okay, (laughs) Debbie. Document your quilt and please include the details of what brought you to do this pattern. Oh, great. Great advice. Okay. How about you, Julie? Look back, (laughs) look at old quilts and books, go to exhibitions, get inspired, enrich your experience of making quilts and enjoying looking at them. Look back. Oh, that's great. And how about you, Alden? I just echo that quilt history is fascinating and wonderful and inspiring to contemporary quilters. Absolutely. Okay. And Barbara, how about you? And I would, I would echo that too. Quilt, well, history plain and simple is fun and think of it as gossip. (laughs) And uh, that's what I do. I love to tell stories about scandals, things like that. Yeah. Have some fun with it. Right. Okay. So Alden, Barbara, Debbie, Julie, and Mary Kay. And I'm sorry, Lynn's not here, but we did learn a bit about her at the beginning. These ladies are also known as the six know-it-alls. It has been so nice to hear your story today and talk to you about some of these fun topics. Thank you so much for being on the show. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having us. A real pleasure. Thanks a lot for having us.
Oh, great. Okay. So that was my show with the six know-it-alls. There is so much to learn about quilt history, curation of shows, care of quilts and preservation. And I love the topics and guests that the six know-it-alls have on their show. These talks just work because these six knowledgeable women come at the topics from all different angles. I love how it is very important to them to bring along other people to learn quilt history. They want to bring about an understanding. They want to let quilt makers know how much they can get by looking at older quilts. You can find the six know-it-alls at quiltdistrict.com and see which lectures are coming up. And also they have a Facebook page, just search six know-it-alls and you'll find everything they have to offer. And if you want to check out a few of their episodes or lectures for free, they have three available on YouTube. So go check out six know-it-alls on YouTube as well. Are you loving this podcast? I would be so thrilled if you would write a review on your podcast app and share this podcast. The kindest thing you can do for a creator is to introduce them to your friends. Now, are you ready for some quilt travel destinations? I'm taking a tour to the Birmingham Festival of Quilts in England in August 2022. And if you haven't heard, I've changed my Japan trip from June to November 2022 to coincide with a quilt show that's happening there as well. I'm so excited and I'd love to have you join me. Go to quilteronfire.com slash events. Thank you for listening to the Quilter on Fire podcast. Until next time, dream big and have fun in the studio with the Quilter on Fire.